Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Anne Brennan. And your current role is as the executive director at the Cameron Art Museum in Wilmington, North Carolina. Correct. Lovely. How did you get to into the sort of the creative fields? So like your childhood, were your parents interested in the arts and creativity? Like what, what was your, sort of your path and your journey that led you to this? Yeah, my father was a drummer and both of my parents came up through the depression and he was he was living in New Jersey outside of Manhattan and, you know, drumming on trash can lids and oatmeal tops and perched on this, on Gene Krupa's stoop to try to, you know, get some lessons. He was a poor kid from Newark. Well, I was going to say, what, what kind of drummer, jazz drummer, rock drummer? Well, he was born in 1920. And so he came up straight through the big band era. And so, and you know, that's when the drummer was the, the band leader. So it was, it was jazz. And he was the only kid in his family that ever went to college or, or got out of Newark. He's, they, all the rest of the enclaves stayed in, in New Jersey, but he got a music scholarship to go to Miami. And that was thanks to a high school counselor saying, John, you know, you got a shot at this. And my father just fell on the floor laughing. Are you kidding me? It's, his dad was chief of police in Newark. And, you know, that is and, they, and his parents were immigrants from Ireland. And so none of that was in the cards. And so the m- music was very definitely a part of our life. And my mother was very interested in visual art. And she took some oil painting. Excuse me, my cat just raked her paws across my chin. She took some oil painting classes at the fledgling, what is now University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Well, it was Wilmington College back in the 60s. And Mama took some nighttime oil painting classes with a prominent artist here in Wilmington, Claude Howell. I know, Matt, you you know Claude. And he would set up still lives and he would teach them to, you know, hold the brush at the end and, and work, you know, work large and work away from the easel. And, well, he set up, one night he set up a, a still life of Indian corn, you know, lovely, beautiful, beautiful burgundies and blacks and yellows and so mama got very serious and she began to choke down on the ferrule of that brush and she was this far from the corn corpse all over and claude circulating you know the, the classroom and he just came along and his thumb right through all of her kernels you know just and she packed up her little box of oil paints and put them behind her hat boxes and as a kid, I knew where the paints were. So I got into them and began to copy greeting cards and calendar pages and, you know, what kids do. So all I wanted to do was paint. And so Little St. John's Art Gallery, which is now Cameron Art Museum, was the only place in town to have any art lessons. And so the, the museum where I now work was really, you know, it's, it was, it was everything. It was, it was where you know, someone took me to a gallery and said, that's a painting. That is a sculpture. So in a small town, you know, having having some sort of art center, there weren't galleries here, Matt. There weren't, there were very few movie theaters. Salian, our, our beautiful 
theater theater downtown was was not that active and so it it very much informed my interest and coming up through public school during the throes of desegregation everything was so destabilized and and the arts are very much the first thing ever cut and the and the schoolrooms are way overcrowded and and so to pursue any art interest it had to be pretty much outside of school and so do you still paint or make art yourself no not not now i don't i went back to grad school as an old person when i was 48 and got a studio degree yeah i left the museum and but then the museum was the best job offer i had coming back so okay yeah my connection i know i actually know wilmington a little bit because i used to come here as a child for on vacation uh, my my uncle used to be the rector at St. James uh, down on 3rd Street when I was a kid. So we used to come down and visit family, basically. I didn't realize that. Long time ago, yeah. Back when Wrightsville Beach water, you couldn't boil it or freeze it like that long ago. Yes. <laughs> yep, that's when we used to come here. All right, so... Based on you, so one thing that like I've got a series of little questions that I I've sort of want to touch on, so which is very abnormal for me. Usually I just roll with it, but the first thing is basically the just the role of an executive director of a museum. To me, that's a very bureaucratic title versus like curator or other things which are very mm -hmm. sort of artistic titles kind of things mm -hmm. to me. So, what do executive directors do at a museum? Well, they have, you know, oversight of of staff. Oftentimes deputy director is we have we finally hired a deputy director that's that's more involved with personnel on a you know an everyday level. A weakness oftentimes we started as a small museum and we're we're still we're a small regional museum now. But oftentimes there are too many people answering to the director of a smaller institution. So we've really tried to diversify that and build a, t a team building environment. And we've really changed the culture of the museum from, from back in the day. But back to your really great quest uh, question about curatorial versus administrative. Oftentimes with a regional museum, the ED is the chief curator. And that's, that's what our institution is also it's not necessarily a strength by any means but the the curatorial positions are the ones so very hard to create and and keep yeah well from funding aspect absolutely yep so but we're getting there and we we have more staff we have a curator of of exhibitions who works very closely with collections too and so there're basically three of us that work so closely with exhibitions, but you know, our education team informs it. We our our overall work is to to dovetail and interlace the departments as much as possible. So you even to include our restaurant. We run a we run a full service restaurant, but it's not separate from the museum. So we try to work in curatorial aspects even with the restaurant. So more or less, like at least your title at your at your museum. So let's not talk about everybody's museum. So your the museum you work at, mm -hmm. your role it could be interchangeably. You could say chief curator or executive director. Yeah, it's really it's both. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the, the ED is hired by, I think, with any 
museum, the, uh, it ans the executive director answers to a board of trustees and they hire the executive director. And then that individual has oversight of all of the hiring and firing of, of staff. And, and for one of another word, carries the vision and mission forward with everything. We're constantly trying to right ourselves with, is this true to our mission, you know, as an educational institution? And curiously, that's what's so often not well understood by the public is that museums are educational institutions. Well, that's what I was about to ask. So like, based on what you yeah. just said, so like, okay, you know, different museums would have different visions slash museum, like um, missions. So what is the mission of the Cameron Art Museum currently? Because I'm sure that it evolves over time. So what is it right now? Our work basically falls into four categories, which we have found has been our rudder ever since our establishment in 1962. So we're trying to stay, stay true to the purposes of the institution since its inception. And that's overall commitment to community. And of course, there are many ways to effect that. Support of artists, collection, care, stewardship, interpretation of a permanent collection, and to lifelong learning, which is zero to later years. And so we're a complex little beastie mat. It's curious how complex an art museum can be, but from the, you know, with, with that umbrella, with basically being a cultural gathering place and an educational institution, there are many different ways to serve that, such as running a museum school, running a full service restaurant, and being in service, which you would appreciate knowing this area, our service region is eight counties of southeastern North Carolina. And you know the extraordinary geography of North Carolina is really something, but Wilmington is, is a rather, it's an urban center. And then there is a radius about of 130 miles that's, that's roots its roots are agrarian and rural, you know, say from Brunswick County, Bladen, Duplin, Columbus, Onslow, Sampson. And then there is all of the, all the resources of the Triangle region. But our service region is, are those, those counties surrounding us. So a good bit of our educational work is completely outside the walls of the museum. You mentioned curatorial processes and board of directors and all this kind of stuff. Uh, these are all things that I'd want to know more about. Okay. So how, how, okay. The reason, okay. Let me take a step back. I used to work slash run in a nonprofit organization and I did a horrible job with my board of directors. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was really bad at it as far as trying to find people and all. And, and by the time I was done, I, it, like, it took me like 10 years, but I figured out how to sort of come up with a good board of directors for our mission. So my question would, for you would be based on your mission, how do you seek out slash choose board of directors? Well, you work with, you know, your current executive committee, et cetera, but wait, what's an executive committee? Well, the executive committee is is your is your board chair, vice chair, secretary, treasurer, two members at large, and they, of course, there are terms that create people in more seasoned positions. It takes a while to learn the ropes. 
Yeah, I was going to say, okay, wait, take it back a step because like I'm going off of stupidity here. So bear with me. The How many board members do you have? So how, how large is it? Our bylaws state that it's about 16 members, but your bylaws are just a tool to go by. They don't, you know, rule everything. They're a guide. And for example, when we ran a capital campaign to expand the institution and needed to raise what rang in at 13 million, the board grew considerably, you know, up to 30 some people. And then your challenge there is to then wean it back down because there was so much fundraising effort. But of course, I mean, you know, what folks say is you're looking for time, talent, or something else. Influence either, wealth. Yes. So we've got, since we're an education institution, we have educational professionals. We have, oftentimes you want, oftentimes it, it, it helps to work out a skills matrix to help in an advisory capacity. You know, folks with financial acumen, legal help, because we, we're always in need of all of those things. And of course, that helps keep keep you on the straight and narrow. The executive director can't begin to, maybe some can. I certainly don't begin to have all of the knowledge in those areas that, that we need. Well, do you have, like, in your mind, at least maybe, so maybe not as, not in writing, but in your mind, do you have, like, okay, on our board of directors, we need to have, like, somebody who specializes in law, somebody who specializes in fundraising. Like, do you have sort of, like, set seats that you're like, okay, we have a seat that has a need, and so we fill it, that each of those seats with somebody that fills that sort of role? Or is it you get people and then you just sort of put them into different roles? It's a great question. The matrix with the skill set is one guide and the other guide, and you see where they mesh sometimes beautifully. The other guide, Matt, is when you, this is a volunteer position. Keep in mind, your board, your board was all volunteers. Crazy, crazy people devoting their time and energy, egos, what, uh, you know, all kinds of different motivations sometimes to this position, but the best source are the people that already need that institution in their lives. So they're the folks you see coming to the museum, coming to the jazz series, coming to brunch every Sunday. Maybe they're already in a volunteer position. We have a volunteer core of a hundred over a hundred people. Hey, your docents, right? Docents, visitor services staff, shop sales, clerical work, help center. We want a human being answering the phone if possible when you call. And so that's the best recruiting ground. But then also sometimes there's a lawyer in that is. And so, and the matrix really the skills piece is you don't want too many lawyers on your board <laughs> or too many accountants or you know, so you, you just, we're too you, many artists because we're just oh Lord. in our own way. Yes. Yes. But the artists oftentimes in my, I mean, I've been executive director 10 years. Oftentimes the artists are really the ones that bring us back from mulling over the bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, and getting distracted and running amok. 
The artists are the ones who bring us back to the purpose and a right the ship every time. Okay, wait, speaking of that, there's a, there is a thing that I was wondering about because I, okay, this is, again, I'm just going to work from a place of stupidity through this entire conversation. But if I were to define the Cameron Art Museum, I would define it as a sort of a publicly accessible private museum. That, that, but I'm sure that's not the right sort of vernacular to explain what the museum is because, but I, I say that because it has the Cameron name on it, mm-hmm. but it's a public museum. So it's, it's sort of pr- somewhat privately collection founded named, but it's a publicly accessible thing. So how do you sort of balance that? That's, that's difficult in the, the, the private piece is, is the legal charter. We're, okay. a pri- we're a private 501c3, which classifies us as a, a charity fully licensed for you to make a, realize a full tax donation from period. The name is because of a bequest of land and seed money. So it's not dissimilar to other, the Hirshhorn Museum or the Walters Art Museum or Guggenheim, Perez, Guggenheim, right? But uh, perhaps to your point, yes, and we are we we are curiously there's not a another museum in the state of North Carolina like this one in that we are owned by the community, and when when I say that, we're not state affiliated. We've got no parent taking care of us whatsoever and that's the only the only museum greenville in greenville north carolina northeast north carolina the greenville museum of art is similar but they're much they're much smaller but we are a a public entity but if we were say named the wilmington museum of art that would connote you know a municipality taking care of us and nothing could be farther from the truth. So let me get it clear. So, so uh, county, city, state, no financial support, no nothing like that towards the Cameron Art Museum. If we write a successful grant. Which was what I was leading to, yeah. actually, which was the, the next question was, do you apply for grants sure. from places like the NEA and the National sure. and the North Carolina Arts and all these kinds of places? Constantly, yeah. We just got the NEA CARES grant, you know, during the COVID. So, but if it's just if, you know, they're they're one off, and that that's to include the city and county. Right. So there'd be what like no ongoing support, but uh, right. project based or program based support upon right. the application of a whatever grant or whatever the kind of income you can get from them. Right. It's tough, but Matt, I think you'll you will find this as astonishing as we are too this year with the pandemic it's the first time it's always been just as you say the grants are project-based so we have to come up with great educational programming say in duplin county and taking teaching artists into the schools and this that and the other and it's it's hard to have any of that go back to general operations that we need so but since the pandemic even with smaller foundations locally and also on more governmental scale 
we're seeing a crack through with general operations monies. That's one of the biggest pet peeves about all of that funding is is they they are fabulous for funding a specific uh, you know, subject related or topic related project or something like this. Great, but unfortunately, it doesn't. They ne- almost never fund well. Just keeping the lights on or paying the the salaries like they're they're always about a an additional thing. So basically, like you you have to be able to function as a whatever organization and get enough money to keep your doors open in order to get this extra money to do now this extra job that you've created for this extra money, but you can't get money to just keep your doors open. Exactly. So say we've got a fabulous exhibition of, you know, celebrating the the ratification of the 19th amendment, a hundred works of art by 100 women. And we know, you know, some kids in, Bertie County, they're, they're coming up with the money to bring the kids in. Well, if, if our utilities bill, just to be able to house that exhibition, is $1,100 a day, and that's not salaries, that doesn't count. You know, so in order to, it's such a chicken egg situation. But we are seeing a little, a little change with operations funding. And then, of course, we, every chance we get, we write in uh, staff labor costs. But oftentimes with the grants, it's an in-kind match, you know, which really doesn't doesn't help us much. Well, but it's also a little bit ridiculous because to a certain extent, you also have to pay to have a full-time grant writer on staff to write these grants to hopefully get this money. But there's no guarantees. So like they may be the best grant writer in the world, but they're just for whatever reason, the judges, the jury, the whatever, just decided not to fund whatever your project was that particular year. So right. it's such a nebulous thing. And it's, you you sort of have to, I mean, it's, it's very hard because as an artist, like we write grants and things like this, but to think of a museum that like hangs their, you know, their future plans on the same hopes and dreams that artists do when we write grants, it yeah. seems rather intimidating. Well, the, the stakes are mighty are mighty high. So, anyway, Agreed. that's a... yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, back to the point of you say that you're you're the chief curator of the place because I always have this question of like, how do museums choose their exhibitions? How do they craft their stuff? Because I mean, basically, like. Certain museums can do can do certain things because they have large scale stuff. You all, as a general whole, have basically two exhibition halls. Would that be right to say? We have two large exhibition wings. You're correct, and then we've got a flex space that we're using for exhibitions increasingly. Yes, the old and gift then, shop. Mm-hmm. And then our reception hall is going to be a large scale exhibition space in two, three weeks, which is unusual. And that's because of the pandemic. We're pretty excited about it, but it's, it's going to be an exhibition of 50 artists made lanterns. So it's just going to be light and design and shape and communication. And But ordinarily, that's a space where we do music programming, facility rentals, wedding receptions, and we that's gone. So we're using it as exhibition space now. So Every chance to turn a limitation into a plus is what we're doing. We got to get creative in these crazy days. So the but the okay, but the question really sort of is getting. I'm trying to get to is 
what is your process for coming up with creating pitching approving a project an exhibition so like is it does it is it all a trickle down like you start everything and it goes down do people can outside curators propose things like so like how does how does that process actually work we organize every exhibition we do which is it's very rarely that we bring in a turnkey exhibition and that's primarily financial because loan, loan exhibitions generally are so very expensive. So all through the years, we just, we learned to bring in guest curators or write the catalog, spike the punch, stackle the walls, drive the scissor lifts, work with the artists, curate the shows. And we work with ideas that are contemporaneous to the time, for example. Right now we have, you know, an exhibition pertaining to the 19th Amendment. We have an exhibition of Black Art Matters with Willie Cole's Blackronyms, which is very timely to current dialogue. We have a very large scale project that we've been working on for over two years now for an installation of a sculpture on our grounds to commemorate U.S. colored troops who fought successfully at a battle on our site. And so that there are attended exhibitions with that. And so it's looking more broadly at issues and trends and concerns of the time. Oftentimes will be more core exhibitions. And then opportunities, we will leave the schedule fairly flexible because opportunities come along that you have to just, you regret not being able to bend your knees and and make it happen. Well, part of why I'm asking is because like I t- I've spoke to other curators and museum directors and they're often talking about like two and three years of planning and preparations to mm-hmm. have exhibitions come up. So like y- you all are a smaller museum, which gives you a little bit more flexibility than some of these larger institutions. So Mm -hmm. the question is sort of like, do you have to plan as far in advance as some of these big institutions or can you do things a bit faster? It's both, but ideally you need at least two years to find the funding to do it at least two years, particularly if there's any kind of publication or you can deepen your educational programming. And we increasingly work with partners on exhibitions. For example, we're working with the digital art department at UNC Wilmington currently on a, a project two years hence that is uh, it's going to be all on the grounds of the museum with video projections and working very closely with the Algae Society. So it's integrating art and science principles. So the, the best work, you need time to be able to do it. But then there are some Say, for instance, a foundation here in Wilmington contacted us. They had a chance to bring in several panels of the AIDS quilts to Wilmington, and they wanted a community-wide installation of the quilts. And we were able to take the lead on that. And we had four or five months lead time. But it was so important. It was so close to our hearts, and we knew how important it would be to the community. We shifted things around and made it happen. So. It's both with with our process. You know, as I was saying, being a community institution and not 
state run. That's terrifying every single day from a fundraising standpoint, but we really do have a great deal of autonomy with pro programmatically that we can move swiftly. If all of our team, and it's our education team, territorial, you name it, if we all feel this is, this is right. You know, we've got a series of questions that we ask ourselves and answer. You know, why, why this exhibition now? Why Cameron Art Museum? Is it within our range? Which audiences, is, is this going to build audience? And, and if so, where and how? How deeply integrated is it with educational possibility? So we, have, we hold ourselves to those questions when an idea comes along. And a lot of things wind up on the cutting room floor. Oh, I'm sure there are hundreds of ideas for every one that comes through into fruition, because not just whether the idea is good, but whether or not you have the space, you have the art, and whether you have the funding. Yeah. We, like so many institutions now, with, with restrictions on loans, you know, the, org the exhibitions we organize, oftentimes we secure loans from other institutions. Well, the majority of us are showing permanent collection work now and looking at it in new ways which is greatly beneficial for, for us, you know, to calm down and, and really in, reinvest in the permanent collection interpretively. So, and that's keeping our costs down. Which is great. I have lots of questions about your permanent collection, but, yeah. but let's take one step back. So you all curate the exhibitions in-house generally. You're, that's what you said, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. One question that a lot of artists and people that I talk to and even curators and all this kind of stuff that I talk to that I often wonder about is basically how can artists or, you know, or curators or any of these people sort of get on the radar of a museum? It's like, you know, if I'm an artist and I'm making something, how can, do you all do studio visits? Do you, like, how do you find out about these different people and sort of try to engage with them? Ideally, you have curatorial staff and, and the funding to do just that, to make studio visits. And we're, we're very remiss in that. And also where we're situated, you know how kind of almost third world Wilmington is. So just getting out and about is. <laughs> I might not call it third world, but okay. But, but that it, is, it is, it is sort of at the end of the road. Yes. Yeah. So the answer to those ambitious and, and important artists asking that question, the institutions that have staff that their job every day is, is paying attention, is finding, is finding the really great work being communicated today. And it's, it, it's on a, on a, an arc of, of maturation and uh, that's ah that's that's the best but that's not necessarily we're trying to stay on the pulse of things and so sister institutions seeing the shows that they're putting together that helps us see new work and we've got great sister institutions in the region but for a young aspiring artist it's to work hard and have something really important to communicate and to communicate it well. You know, so oftentimes young artists will, they'll have these great ideas, 
but the realization of it is wanting. So it, it might be weak and or or the other way around. Sometimes right, right. absolutely amazing craftsmanship and skill, but not a very interesting idea. Right. Right. I know. I teach. So. I know. But and it's hard. I mean, within that kind of thing, like so if you're looking, okay, I, I'm interested in this little tidbit with like what if you're looking at an artist and you're trying to define like, are they meeting the criteria that makes them worthy to be in an exhibition in your museum. What are you looking for? Like, what are some of the, because craftsmanship idea, like what, what constitutes that it's sort of good. They've progressed to sort of that worthy status. Well, I think that there's some depth to what it is they're trying to communicate. We, we are wonderfully more privy to to new talent when the artists, I think there's so much more collaborative work going on. And so when those artists wind up working with others, not necessarily visual artists, it may be musicians and with film, but that they together are realizing something important to say, that's a great way, you know, rather than having this traditional expectation, oh, I want a solo museum of just my work at the museum. Nah. Maybe not so much. It's tough. You know, a lot, a lot of the artists that are working today were taught by artists who were working 50 years ago. So like to, to break these traditions and come up with sort of new and inventive, creative and expressive ideas is going to take time. Like it, I don't yeah. think it's as common as, as yet as we would like it to be. But yeah, we're, we're getting there. Okay. Last question about artists. Yeah. Can artists donate to a museum? Sure, they can. In all of in our in our federal government's wisdom, the artists can't used to. I mean, I'm old enough. I can remember even when I I began work at the museum as a curator, an artist could donate work. I started in 1990, and I can't remember when the laws changed, but let's say early 90s you could donate work to the museum and realize a full tax donation of its market value. I thought that was still true. Was no, true. no, 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 no. Oh. For, for easily 20 years now, if you were a photographer, it's, it's what you've spent on film and processing. It's not even your, your labor. So a painter would only get the cost of canvas and paint. Yeah. So, the, what and I learned this from from an artist. I thought it was great. Ben Ben Owens. He's a ceramicist from Seagrove, North Carolina. Great career. Comes from a long, distinguished line of potters. He said, "And this is what I've learned to do: is encourage one of my patrons. You know, like one of my one of my vested Medici's, who's really helped, who's believed in me, has bought my work all through my career." to have one of their patron donate to the museum. They get a full tax write-off. Ben's work would then be in a, an important museum collection. And it's a, it's a great feel good for the patron. So no money, no money is going in the artist's pocket, but their work is still in the, well, no, so say that patron buys a new work. Yeah. From, yeah. Right. Okay, but wait a minute, so I'm totally, dumbfounded by this law that you just said so 
in the past, you could get a full tax write-off for the retail value of a piece that you donated to a museum. You are saying that currently the law has changed so that if an artist donates to a museum, they only get the cost of the materials, whereas if a, if a person who owns a piece of art donates to a museum, they get full tax deduction to, for the retail value of it. Correct. That is ridiculous. And that's not a new law. Like I say- uh, who, who made this law? That's a this ridiculous is, law. This is the internal revenue. But another variation on a theme, which we're, we're working on with a donor and, and a living artist right now, we have a donor who wants to buy a new work for our collection. And museums get a museum discount oftentimes. And so sometimes there's a, there's a gallery involved and that, you know, it's a part of things. So we will buy the work from the gallery. The gallery will take their commission. We'll get a, the museum will get a discount. The gallery will take their commission. I don't know what their cut is. The artist will realize whatever his arrangement is with the gallery. And then our donor will write a check to Cameron Art Museum for the amount that we paid. And she will get a full tax donation. Oh my gosh, tax law is so crazy. All right. <laughs> I mean, as long as you can make it work to everybody's advantage, I don't care how people do the tax stuff. But the fact that there are laws about this is ridiculous. But it, it, ha- it has bearing on, on that artist's work being in a collection, though. You know. Which is we all desire, so I totally get that. But wait, okay, but you brought up the idea that museum does purchase artwork. Absolutely, yes. Okay, what? How does that happen? So, like, I mean, okay, so let's say somebody's you're just sitting in your office, and somebody just says, "Hey, I want to buy a piece of, or we need some new artwork." Like, is it? Do you? Is it? Do you? Like, is it based off of? Hey, we have some extra money, or do you have to plan like years in advance? Say, hey, we want to buy this thing in three years. Let's fundraise for it. Like, how does how does the the whole process of purchasing a piece of art work? With our institution, we have a wish list. We all have a wish list, right? And before 1997, say for example, on our wish list, and and and. You, institutions have a collections focus oftentimes too, which helps inform the wish list. So for example, a part of our focus is the collection of work by North Carolina based artists. Elliot Dangerfield, preeminent 19th century painter from Blowing Rock, North Carolina, really out of our price range, you know. And so back in the day, we would watch the auction houses and you know a beautiful little danger field would come up and it might be something remotely within our price range but we'd have to bounce with it right then we would have to go to a donor and beg saying look we think we can purchase this for five thousand dollars or whatever now we received a bequest in 1997 from the artist claude howell to purchase work considered north carolina art fortunately in his enlightenment, he left the definition of that broad, which is great. That bequest is about a million dollars now. And so each year we can spend around 41000 which is 4%. Working off of the interest from the bequests, yeah. Right. And we're very conservative with the looking at the interest across a mean of three or four years. And so 
we have a wish list of, of you know, up and comers, contemporary artists working in North Carolina or traditionalists. Exactly. So we know, right, exactly. And in 2017, we received a bequest from Louis Belden, who gave us the Modernist Print Collection. Louis was concerned that really the only endowment we had was just earmarked for North Carolina. And he was, he was fearful that a provincialism would set in for the institution. And he wanted us to have unbridled, unrestricted. And so he left us the beginning of our first endowment to purchase work from. And so that's one, one way museums may have an acquisitions endowment fund for purchases. Otherwise, they just have to, you know, maybe in their budget, they have, they're raising money for acquisitions. Okay, this list that you have of like your wish list, is this a public list or is this a in-house list only? Yeah, it's not, it's not public. It's just a, it's a guide for us because then we're learning about new artists. For example, Leanne Truong, we had an exhibition of work by North Carolina Fellowship recipients, which blew our mind and it gave us a chance to see all this new work that we didn't know about and knew that we have got to somehow find a way to acquire her work while we could still afford it. Because some young artists coming along, you know, whoa, they're going to get out of our meager reach really soon because they're, they're, their careers are just, and so you can stray from your, from your wish list also. Oh, I'm just picturing in my mind if like, because, well, the reason why I'm thinking this is of course my parents are getting older and at some point in the next couple decades, I'm going to need to be donating some pieces to some museums yeah. and institutions. And so I'm thinking if I knew what the wish list was yeah. as, as a public person, you know, just like, so the list was made public basically That's a really good point. That, that, that I could sit here and go like, Hey, wait a minute. I have one of those things on their wish list. So like mm -hmm. I could coordinate with them that upon my, you know, the future, you know, a, a, you know, yes. need, needing to donate to museums that I actually might have something for their wish list. So that's yes. why I was just wondering if that wish list was publicly known or not, or even if the public has any input on that wish list. No, the public no. doesn't have input on the wish list. Um, it's, fine. it's just a, just an idea. That's a really good idea. It's it's managing expectations also from the yeah. public because there's an acquisitions committee review. We're we're already outstripped with storage, and that's a common that's a common problem with institutions. But you're absolutely right. Say, for example, we know that we have a commitment to the collection of work on paper, and as you well know, with prints, we discussed this when we spoke briefly before. And so that's a really good idea. But you you know, it's just one of those things that like it might just get it might help to get the public at large more involved and knowledgeable about the workings of the museum right. and how the process works and all this. So they, they would appreciate it more because they somehow felt like they were involved in it. You're right. Just my two cents. We, we do have a membership level for that purpose too. It's not as democratic as, as you're proposing, but it's, it's a basic annual giving society. And for that donation, like I'm a founding member, 
I know that I'm going to have three unusual educational opportunities regarding art collecting and education in the course of a year. I'll have perhaps a private tour of, of, of a private collection in someone's home, a tour of a new architectural structure in town after hours, and I'm assured a dinner in February at the museum where the staff trots out five works of art that we aspire to acquire. And the individuals of the Giving Society, they hear, we make a case as to why we want to purchase this work by Matthew Dolls, why we want to purchase this work by Beverly McKeever. And we make a case as compelling, you know, showing no favorites whatsoever, because we want all five of these works. But with the money from endowment, we might only be able to buy two. And so this group gets to vote on who the winner is. And this is, is this that uh, compass group that I've heard about? Yeah. And then as last year, what happens is that so many folks fall in love with everything that folks raise their hands and say, well, I'll buy that for the museum. Well, I'll, I'll get that for the museum. I need to meet some of these people. These people sound marvelous. We were looking at the work of Phil Freelon. You know, he was the architect of the Smithsonian's Museum of African-American History and Culture. And he was a photographer and he just, he just passed away last year. So back to your question, I was, we were able to work with Phil in the last two months of his life, putting this show together. We rearranged heaven and earth to make that happen because he's such a great, great, great man. And so we were able to acquire three works from his collection instead of just one. So it is, it's very, it's much, it's back to your point about the excitement of, of, the education of it all grows donations. Okay. Now you brought up something that I have a huge interest in, which is the nature of storage for museums, because I would listen to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast where he had this huge gripe about museums, basically hoarding all of the great cultural things and throwing them into storage units and not exhibiting majority of things. Have you heard this podcast? No, I need to. It is uh, revisionist history newest season quite good quite i mean i love museums and i was listening to it and i got a little upset listening to it i'm like damn it because some of the bigger institutions you just buy and buy and buy and throw things in storage and never exhibit them Uh, i mean Mm. yours of course is a little bit different but so the question being is what kind of limitations like how do you do it like i don't even know do you store things on site or do you have like external storage do you like how do museums do this we have storage on site and unfortunately now external expensive climate controlled storage because we're our space is outstripped and that's another reason why museums oftentimes have capital campaigns to grow the facility ours is 20 years old what we projected as our storage need you know, back in 2001, it's changed a bit. And so we're trying to figure any kind of reconfiguration to expand storage. And then we have some loan exhibitions that are in storage also. But they're, you know, we just got a gift of 800 concrete sculptures by Annie Hooper, you know, the outsider artist who worked in Buxton, North Carolina. Do you know Annie's work? Not by name. 
she filled her house with little biblical characters that are two feet high. You've got to look her up, Matthew. She, her home was so populated, she had to use a stick to turn the light switch off and on. She couldn't move around. I will put a link to her in, in the show notes. Yes. And so we were, particularly since we're situated in eastern North Carolina, it was appropriate that over 3,000 of her artworks, they were dispersed among different institutions. The Kohler Art Center um, received a goodly number, but we were very interested um, in her work too. And so we had to have offsite storage for Annie. Well, I mean, but that's a, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Cause like I'm asking about like donations and purchasing works and then storage. I mean, this is a consideration that every museum and of course yours needs to, to take into consideration. So like, you can't just say, we're going to buy these monumental pieces because you just don't, I mean, beside you can't afford it, but you also might not be able to store it. So like, right. that's a tough sort of balance to continually ride because you want to grow as a museum and you want to get bigger and better and more prestigious pieces, but you also have the limitations of not just your exhibition halls, but your storage capabilities. Exactly. And so it, it's not for the faint of heart to take the stewardship piece so seriously. You know, the decisions that current leadership makes, you know, the leadership 20 years from now is, is having to deal with or 30 years from now. And so to take care of materiality in perpetuity, I mean, the artwork never grows up and goes away. You know, you, you just, you invested to care for it. Well, which is a question like, so I've heard of stories of museums selling off lesser works in order to raise money to buy new works and stuff. Do you all have something in your bylaws that like you don't sell works or do you sell works? We have our collections policy is completely unconditional. If we accept say uh, a Leonard Baskin print. <laughs> no specific person from, in mind there. <laughs> from a local private collector. She's she's poking fun at me and my family pieces. <laughs> and we have Baskin in the collection, so chances are we definitely would acquire that work. However, we would make sure that the donor understood that the work is going through acquisitions committee review and it may or may not be acquired for the collection. And if it's not acquired for the collection, we would sell it or, I mean, we would have freedom to do whatever with it. But if we acquire the work, then there is the commitment on the part of the institution to take care of it in perpetuity. The only way it would be sold or given away then it would be deaccessioned, and that is a, an extremely serious decision for a museum to make. For instance, we have never deaccessioned anything. Which was going to be my next question, yes. There, there's process with that, too, because, you know, say that Baskin print, we would go to her heirs to offer them the golden opportunity to buy the work back. So, there, so there's a lot of process. But say, for example, the New York Historical Society, I remember years ago, they had hit on really hard times. This happens with museums. And one of your greatest assets is your collection oftentimes. 
and they were talking about selling their their Audubon print collection. You may remember that. Oh, the hue and cry. It's 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 fraught politically and every ethically and should be. So that decision to acquire the work is is a big one. So people give us work oftentimes, and we, for example, the artist Clyde Jones just gave us over 200 of his paintings. And he said, Anne, you do with these what is best for the institution. And we had a, a very successful sale. We acquired some of the work. We have some of it set aside and, and a, over 100 paintings sold, which helped us with our operations budget at a time that's dire. Okay, wait a minute. You did a sale of this person's art. If I like, so I'm thinking for me, like, so what if I wanted to buy one of those? How would I have heard about this sale? It was publicly promoted, and we had it at the at the museum, and oh, okay, promoted on social media and eblasts, and featured articles and TV interviews, and okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering. So basically, if somebody from, is listening to this from around the world, they should just get on your email list is what you're saying. There you go. Okay. There you that's, go. That's what I'm getting to. Um, okay. Uh, you were talking about like the collections and the stewardship of it and things like this. Now, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And when I was in high school, I had the incredible luxury and privilege of being able to literally go into the Smithsonian, East Wing, contemporary modern art and go into their collections and do my research on my art history paper by like handling the artwork in their collection space. So my question is, is like, if somebody's doing research on something about uh, something you have in your collection, or they just want to even have sort of a, basically a private showing of something that they're very enamored with, is your private collection open for public um, interaction? Absolutely. We work with scholars and students often, and we have the only Minnie Evans Study Center extant. As you know, she's an important artist from this region. So, yeah, but it's, it's to set up, you know, an appointment. Sometimes people will have, students or scholars will have a, a lengthy research project, and that we love that because it's only helping us learn more about the collection. It's heaven, particularly for a small staff. Great. I mean, yeah. as I said, like it was fabulous for me and as a high school student. And so I've, it's nice to know that that opportunity is not just a Smithsonian thing. No, no, no. Mm -mm. Shouldn't, shouldn't be. Adam, I did my high school research papers at the Library of Congress also. So, you know, I, I used all those ridiculous things. It was great fun. <sighs> but my last big sort of thing that I ha have on my mind, I haven't really talked about this publicly yet, but like, um, uh, you know, as as a lot of the collectors that are out in the world are starting to age, and and then their their estates are going to sort of be passed on generation on generation. A lot of next generations might not want everything from the household, and they might want to make arrangements to donate work in advance to some institutions. Mm -hmm. like, is this it, it, how is that handled? Because like. I'm thinking for myself, like my parents have some amazing artworks that I love them, but I don't want them necessarily in my home when they pass away. So, mm -hmm. I, but I would love them to see them available to the public in some way. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
how can basically sort of like estate planning for people with some art collections be done in advance? Because you don't want to wait until somebody actually dies because then it's all emotional and traumatic and all that. But if you could do, if you could set it up in advance and say, okay, when, you know, like, let's say I have some amazing art collection, I could find a museum that I, that I love or admire or their collection fits with my collection. And right can you it be done can people say okay Absolutely. i will give you a contract that says upon my death you get xyz mm-hmm. is this something you all do absolutely that can happen and it's called a uh, oftentimes it's a promised gift our experience has been wonderful in that regard and heartbreaking in that regard because uh, for example time and again a collector will intend to give that work fully intend but maybe the paperwork isn't absolutely signed sealed delivered he or she passes away and the children have an entirely different motivation and the institution for example our little museum took care of a beautiful bronze of a a cupid and a gazelle cupid and the gazelle oh so beautiful and we took care of it. We paid conservators to help with some vice that was on the bronze, the, the little gazelle's back, on and on and on. Well, the donor passed away. The children wanted it back. And, the, and so that was remiss on the museum's part and the, you know, not seeking clarification on that gift. But yeah, it's just to get estate planning lawyers involved and and it's so much fun, Matt, because you don't have to die to enjoy seeing what your the effect, the influence it's having on the community. Our recent gift of modernist prints, we borrowed selections of them through the years. And so the donor could see, he would come and visit from San Francisco. He could hear the community saying, oh, Mr. Belden, this is so incredible. He could be a part of the process. It was gorgeous. So do it early and do it legally. Yeah. And, and and to be so respectful of what the museum, what the museum is taking on, taking care of that work, you know, and, and showing it. But it also, it's such a great advantage for the museum because the, the longer the work is at the museum, if the family is going back and forth at all, it just, it helps. It helps all the family see this is really a great thing to consider. Well, and I had a previous guest on, Amy Potzik, that it does estate planning for artists and how artists can also sort of contact institutions, whether they're libraries or museums or whatever, to basically prearrange to have their, not just their artwork, but like their sketchbooks or other uh, sundry things from their stuff to create sort of a an educational longevity and legacy for that artist at a particular museum. Is this something that the Cameron is hoping or does currently do? We have not pursued that, but we would be very interested in it because the collections we do have that are from sketchbooks on, you know, where we have the papers, we have all that context that helps tremendously. And then of course the students and scholars visiting, it's, it's priceless. It's, and then also 
say for instance, Annie Hooper collection, when there are key institutions, when it's not just one institution, this whole repository is being looked at, then maybe two or three museums work together. So, so no one's taking on that much storage and care, but it gives those institutions a chance to work together. Last little two sort of things that I want to touch on. Um, uh, is there any topic that you would like to bring up or discuss that I have not brought up that you think is sort of important for listeners to understand about not only you and your role, but the Cameron Art Museum as a whole? Just where where you live, if if an institution, an art museum, an institution really has deep meaning for you, communicate with with that institution as to why and how, and if it's not meeting your needs, communicate. Because the stakeholders, you know, those of us who really need these institutions, that's the only way we're going to stay relevant and support the heck out of them. Because we're, particularly with the pandemic, we're going to lose, what, 12% of our institutions? At least. Yeah, conservatively, yes. Yeah, because, yeah, like, I mean, I'm thinking as an artist, because of course I'm an artist also, like I'm remembering stories about people saying like, oh, if you want to get into a particular museum, what you do is you get one of the board of directors or the board of trustees to purchase with some of your works so that then they go back as a board member and sort of encourage collecting the work of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> does that kind of cunning plan really work? I'm sure it does. Um, I haven't had I haven't had direct experience with it, but of, of course, that's very attention getting. I would imagine it would it would not work. Like if I were to, as an artist, come directly to you and say, hey, Anne, would, would you buy a piece of my work for the museum? Like that wouldn't work it, because it needs the support of all these other people. Like it's not just one. One of the things that a lot of people think about museums is they think like one person makes all the decisions, but no, it, it's no. not mm-hmm. that at all. It's It's mm-hmm. a groups and committees and all these kinds of things but okay last little thing is um any advice for any particularly like you can choose curators other museums museum directors artists anybody in the arts industry some advice for them oh the artists just to keep working hard oh my gosh and again as i as i pointed out if there's if there's a way to not work necessarily in in isolation. The artists that really have become close with our institution, they have been so willing to teach or do a tour or that there was some kind of educational, there's no greater generosity really oftentimes than from artists. They're not, you know, I mean, they're so passionate about their work and those which were so readily willing to help us educationally, we need them in our life. And of course, in that, you grow more interested in their work. And then when opportunities, it might not be with our institution, but to know that X does great work in fiber, we might be talking with another museum that's doing a fiber exhibition or something and say, oh, have you looked at the work of so-and-so? So it's it's to really become familiar with your institution. Okay, wait, you just brought something up. 
museums talk to other museums? Absolutely. We imagine you all are islands upon yourselves and you only care about yeah. yourselves. No, and that's been another advantage with the pandemic was, you know, forcing us to, well, we became very, in this state, we became very politically activist to try to reopen. And so, as you know, the Asheville Art Museum in Western North Carolina, their director corralled all the collecting institutions for us to present a united front to the governor to allow us to reopen. We're losing we're losing our shirts. We lay, I laid off 29 staff members. And so being able to, you know, we're closer now, even for that political activism. And we trade, you know, we'll, we'll do, we're borrowing from one another. And not all states may be this way or other regions in the country, but the state of North Carolina is so big we need to look at it as one big community to share resources. And so that's, whether it's visual art, music, theater, dance, you know, as we work with musicians and filmmakers and dancers and, you know, from all over. So absolutely we work, we work with each other. Marvelous. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. It's such a pleasure being with you. Working in the museum profession is probably, uh, fortunately, much more formalized now than when I came along. But here I was from a relatively small town where any kind of jobs opportunity was pretty scarce. But I wanted to work in the art field somehow. I was a painter. I was a studio. Was, that was all I knew. And so I'm selling clothes, you know, working in a restaurant. We all know the tunes, those tunes. So our museum. I met the director. I had had some of my work shown there and I just, his name was Ren Brown. And I kept saying, Ren, haven't you got any, any job? You know, I just, I'll mop floors. I'll be a security guard. Don't you have anything? I just, I just want to get my foot in the door. Oh, no, no, your way. No, that wouldn't suit you. And so I began to volunteer. And all of our hires, even to this day, that's one of the first places we look is our volunteer core, because we already know that person's chops. We already know that they're a joy to work with, et cetera. So I began to work with the membership database, which I had done for public radio back in the day. So I knew how to do that. And interestingly, our state arts council used to have a salary assistance grant stream, which was a four year grant. And for a small institution to try to create a new salary position is really, really hard. And so the grant stream would be 100% first year, 75, 50, get the picture. And then by that time, the institution may have enough sea legs to keep that job. So our institution got a salary assistance grant to hire a curator and registrar of collections at $18,000 with no health benefits. This is in 1990. And so I applied for the job. And I think the only reason that I got it is that Ren had been in Paris all summer. He hadn't been dealing with filling the job. And he was going to lose the grant money if, if he didn't hire the next person that walked in the door that was warm. And so he said, why don't you take this job? 
you get a chance to work with art and exhibitions, it'll be great. And I said, okay. And I walked from the museum to our local library, which was a few blocks, and I looked up the word curator. I didn't know what one was. He did say, you know, I can teach you this business. I can't teach you to have an eye was the word back then, but but I can teach you this business. So if you really have fire in your belly for, for this for this most fulfilling job, it's a it's a great industry. It's extraordinarily generous all across the world. The museum folks that we've worked with with larger treasure houses, the Met, MFA Boston, you name it, they have been just as accessible as museums that were more our size. So yeah, that would not work today, what you just said, but yeah. <laughs> that was so of its time. Yeah. So it can go on the editing room floor, but it did happen. Oh, no, no, no. This will be a little <laughs> added thing I'm going to throw on at the end. And I'm even going to leave this as well, because this is thoroughly entertaining. So yes. <laughs> The Latin root of curator is lovely. To take, is it really? It's just to take care. Take care. Curate. Tell that Thank to you, Instagram. <laughs> okay. Yeah.